Welcome to North Star Big Book. My name is Carly Israel and I'm a recovered alcoholic. My sobriety date is January 27th, 1999. And I am so excited to share my love of the big book with you. If you would like to come on and be a guest and share in an episode, a part of the book that you love so other people can feel that light and that hope, please go on to carlyisrael.com and message me. I hope you enjoy this episode. wanted to share my most recent lead with you. Thank you so much, Marlene. I'm, I'm honored to be here. I have to tell you that I love Alcoholics Anonymous and it has saved my life. So I want to thank you all for all the part you've played in that. And I want to, I know we did the serenity prayer, but I need to do it again. So God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference just for today. My sobriety date is January 27th, 1999. I'm a recovered alcoholic, and I'll explain what that means for anyone that doesn't understand. My home group is North Star Big Book, and all are welcome. As I was saying before the meeting started, we are going to be virtual indefinitely for life on Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, and all are welcome. I have been taking people through the Big Book for the last 21 years. I was taken through the book early on in my sobriety, and I'll tell you how that happened. And I just have to tell you that the big book has continued to save my life. And the more I study it, the more I realize I don't know and I want to keep learning. So I'm excited to go on this journey with you guys tonight. And thank you so much for asking. I, I'm excited to be here. I want to read something out of the big book on page 160 that reminds me of what my responsibility is tonight. <clears throat> it says, Many a man yet days from his hospital experience has stepped over the threshold of that home into freedom. Many an alcoholic who entered there came away with an answer. And what I have written in my book is what answer am I offering? And I needed to remember that to remind me when I'm leading a meeting and when I'm at a meeting that my responsibility is to offer a solution. And my hope is that what comes out of my mouth is from the first 100 men and women and what they gave us. I'm not supposed to offer my solution. I'm supposed to offer the solution and it was explained to me that there are many ways to stay sober and that we don't have a monopoly on sobriety. But if a new person comes to Alcoholics Anonymous, then we should offer them the solution of Alcoholics Anonymous because if we don't, then we're doing them a disservice. And I truly believe that the people in these rooms are all well-meaning. Unfortunately, before when I got here, I was hearing a lot of messages that were not from our book they were well-meaning messages, but they almost killed me. Um, and they were along the lines of, don't drink and go to meetings. Keep coming back, it's going to get better. And I did, and I didn't. I kept coming back, and I didn't get better. And I'm going to tell you what that was like because I'm a real alcoholic. So I'm just going to take you through the beginning of my alcoholism and my background because I really like to focus on my sobriety because I think it's so much more interesting. But I grew up in an alcoholic home. My parents are both in the program. They're both sober 30 years. I am not a member of AA because they are. Um, if you look at logic and you watch somebody, you know, do the things that I watched my parents do in the house I was in, you would never think someone's going to ever live like that again. And that's just the disease of alcoholism. So I grew up in that home. And while it did not make me an alcoholic, it definitely taught me some life skills that ended up 
being my survival skills for a long time and then flipping on me and being my character defects. So growing up in that home, if you grew up in an alcoholic home, what you can relate to that I went through is that you have to keep your outside looking good so no one can talk to you about what's really going on. And you can't tell anybody the truth because you have to protect the secrets. And I also learned at a very young age that I couldn't trust anybody. And so with all that, and then you throw in alcohol and I'm like, peace out, everybody. Like once I found alcohol, I was like, why didn't anyone tell me about this before? Like no joke. Why didn't I have this like in kindergarten? Do you know how hard kindergarten was when you're in my brain, right? When you've got a brain that hates itself and that is so in fear and anxiety. And so my first drunk, I was nine. I was at, um, family's Jewish and we were at, a Passover Seder, which is around this time. And Manischewitz wine was flowing and it was totally acceptable for me to have it. I mean, at Passover, you're supposed to drink four cups and they thought I was drinking the grape juice, but they were giving me the wine because they were all drunk. And I remember having a blast and pantsing myself. And that was basically like my story, right? I had a, I got drunk. I had a blast and I pants myself. And Obviously, I didn't have drinking after that because I was nine, but I remember the feeling. And the feeling was I had no idea that I could get out of the yucky feelings I had and have a good time. And so when it was presented to me again around 12 years old with my friends stealing our parents' alcohol and stealing things from drugstores, I found out that a couple of things. I was really good at drinking. Like I could drink like nobody's business. And people around me thought I was hysterical and it was entertaining. And I never want somebody at an AA meeting that's new to think that we hate alcohol. Like no one here hates it. We might not like what it did to us and where it brought us, but like I had a blast. And if I didn't have a blast, you would not believe me when I tell you about what else happened. And so the way I always like to describe the beginning of my alcoholism because there's a part in the big book in the doctor's opinion where it talks about the progression. And whenever I'm working with a new person, I like to have them share with me what it was like in the beginning. And then I share with them what it was like in my beginning. And then I share what it was like at my end. So in my beginning, I felt like a superhero that was drinking like liquid neon and I would wear go-go boots and glitter and boas because I was named Carly after Carly Simon because my parents were hippies and I totally thought I was born in the wrong era. And I just had a blast. Um, I threw up every single time I drank because I drank so much and I got in a lot of trouble, but it was never alcohol. It was just whatever the combination I did was. And I kept the outside looking good by getting awesome grades and being involved in like a hundred activities. So no one could stop me and be like, what are you doing with your life? You're a mess. And by the time I ended up right before I got to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, the feeling I was chasing from alcohol was no longer that freedom and that glow and that like I can take on the world. I hoped it would kill me. I wanted it to make all of my feelings go away. I didn't even want to be happy anymore. I wanted none. I wanted to, the language I used to describe what I wanted to do at night with my friends when we were going out was let's go get annihilated. Let's go get obliviated. We wanted to get ourselves, I wanted to get myself to a place where I could not breathe or feel or know because I hated existing in my life. And that was a very short period of time. So that was from a like, 
12, 13 to almost 20. And that relatively feels very short, but there's a guy in our book who started drinking at like 33 and by 35 was in, was in the asylum. And so what I need to always remember is that my alcoholism has nothing to do with how long I drank, how often I drank, or how much I drank. It's only about what happened to me when I put alcohol in my body, which to me, and this wasn't every time, but it was a lot of the times. I could not control the amount I was going to take once I started drinking. And the more I drank, the thirstier I got. And the way I drank, I was a shot. I liked shots and I would order them like two at a time. And I would just line them up at the bar and shoot them because I wanted it now. But I missed the off ramp and then I would be beyond, right? And so when I put alcohol in my body, I couldn't control the amount I took, which is the physical allergy. And when I tried to not drink because it was causing problems in my life, I couldn't, I could stop because someone was on my case. My mom was bothering me. Somebody in my life was, was threatening the end of a relationship or I was having a lot of psychiatric issues and mental issues and emotional issues and wanting to kill myself and being really emotionally a mess. And I didn't want the problem to have anything to do with my solution, which was alcohol. So I wanted the problem to be that I had a psychiatric diagnosis, which no judgment. I, I have a mental illness. I will always have that, but that was not my real problem, but I wanted that to be my problem because then my solution would just be a pill and then that pill would make it so I could be better. And if only the doctors would listen to me and give me the right pill, then I could drink the way I want to drink and not want to kill myself. I didn't know that I was pouring depressants in my body, that that's what alcohol is. And I also didn't know that, see, I saw my parents drinking. My parents were my example of what an alcoholic was. It wasn't the guy under the bridge with, you know, like the coat in the bag. It was my mom passed out on the couch or my dad, you know, drinking all, all night long and I didn't do that. My alcoholism looked different. And so when I was able to go, my mom um, got in my, she, she is an awesome member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And thank God she went to Families Anonymous to get help because she told me that my alcoholism brought her to her knees more than her own did. And she never stopped carrying this message to me. So if any of you have family members or friends that you love that are a mess, what she kept carrying to me was the solution and she kept showing me where the light was. She wasn't making me feel ashamed about it, but she was telling me where to go if I needed it and she never stopped. It was annoying, but I was grateful because I knew where it was. And she gave me a challenge. It's not the same challenge that's in our book where they tell you to try to some control drinking. And there's another challenge where it tells you to, to not drink for a year. She said, could you go three weeks? And I was like, sure, I could go three weeks because I could do anything I set my mind to. I can get the grades. I can get the guy. I can get, you know, make my body as skinny as I want, like from all these disgusting things I was doing. I could do all these things. I could do whatever I wanted. Why wouldn't I be able to go three weeks? And what I found when I tried to do that was I could do it, but I was miserable. I couldn't sleep without drinking. I couldn't function in school. I didn't get good grades anymore for those three weeks. I I felt like, and I thought I was like a peaceful person. Like I didn't know I had anger inside me. And when I didn't drink, I felt like someone had ripped off the first layer of my skin and then put me in the sun. I felt like if you looked at me the wrong way, I wanted to kill you. And if there's any women on here that know what it feels like to have really bad PMS, I felt like that all the time. And what they explain in our big book is that's called restless, irritable, and discontent. 
And that when we don't have our solution, alcohol in our body, we feel that way. And our mind tells us a lie that we'll feel better if we pick up a drink. And so what happened was a couple of things. I went three weeks. Therefore, my mind told me, see, you're not a real alcoholic. Because real alcoholics cannot go three weeks. This is my very limited understanding. So my mind told me that. And this is all stone cold sober. I have no alcohol or anything else in my body. My mind also told me you're more miserable than you've ever been in your entire life. And you're not drinking. So alcohol is not the issue. And your other issue is that you haven't found the right medication. And nobody wants to be around you because you're so awful. So until you find the right medication, why don't you have some drinks and you'll feel better, and then you'll figure it out along the way. And I thought that made a perfect, perfect sense. That's called the mental obsession. My mind convinced me the lie that it would be safe to pick up a drink again. I picked up a drink without any alcohol in my body, so I was not physically craving alcohol, even though I thought I was because I wanted it so bad. It was in my mind. And the reason why I really try to go over this part when I share my story is that it was explained to me that my real problem is not alcohol. My real problem is my mind that believes a lie that I need alcohol in order to function. And the way I like to describe it is picture yourself at nighttime in the summer, but it's not like the middle of the summer where it's hot. It's kind of like the end of the summer and you're in a pool and you have to go to the bathroom and you get out of the ba- go to the bathroom and you come back to go back to the pool and it's freezing, you know, the air is cold and you run to get back in the pool and you jump in and it's so warm. That's what it felt like when I went back to alcohol and I was like, I'm never getting out of the pool again. I did it, I'm done, I'm never getting out again. And then what happened was what they talk about in the doctor's opinion, that horrible cycle of alcoholism where I would overdo it because I couldn't control the amount I took when I put it in my body. Everybody would be mad at me. I would come to hate what I saw in the mirror, hate myself so much. People would tell me they're disappointed. People would push me out of their life because I was too much. I would make a promise to myself I wasn't going to do this anymore. I would believe that I could do that. I would go a few days. I would be miserable. I'd want to kill everybody. I'd want to kill myself. My mind would tell me the lie that I could have a little bit right now. And then I'd pick up a drink again and I'd start all over again. And then I'd come to, I'd hate myself and I'd make a new decision and I would go a few more days and then I would pick up again. That is alcoholism. It has nothing to do with what happens in in how much I drink. It happens, alcoholism for me, my understanding is what happens in between the periods of not drinking and picking up that drink again. That that is untreated alcoholism and my real problem was my mind. And so I found myself, I was a college student at Ohio University, which if you're like in Ohio area, I think it should be like on the 41 questions. There you go, OU Bobcat. And so in order to like be a member of AA and, and that side of you know the country, you basically have had to go there because it's it's a party town. However, I was the only student that was a female that was sober in AA there. The entire population of Athens, Ohio AA was like the quantity that are is in this meeting right now. And so they only had one meeting a week um, that was a lead meeting. And then every other meeting was a discussion meeting because if they had a lead every day, then we'd hear the same people's stories like every month. And so it was very small. It was all townies. It was me and one guy that was a student and then townies. And the reason why I went A was I came to after a number of those situations where I kept promising I wasn't going to drink anymore and then coming to and I was miserable and I was suicidal and I couldn't breathe and there was an ice storm in January of 1999 
And I went, I was in theater and I went to this woman that I knew was in AA and she was the youngest person in AA next to me. So I was 19 and then she was 32. And I was like, what is this old lady going to know about me? And I'm 41 right now, but like, I remember thinking 32 and I sat with her at a coffee shop and I said, I need help. I don't know what's wrong with me. Do you think I'm an alcoholic or a drug addict? And she did what I'm supposed to do. And she said, I can't tell you what you are, but if you want to come and find out, you can come with me to a meeting. And she got up and she left. She wasn't like, do you want me to put your coat on and hold your hand? She got up and she left. And she said, if you want what I have, come follow me. And I did. I followed her to the meeting. I was given a big book. You guys wrote your names and numbers. Somebody even wrote, you're a perfect child of God. And I was like, what have I done with my life? And I ended up in AA and what am I doing? And they asked me to read something and I cried the whole time. I took my big book. I left without a sponsor, without any steps, without any direction other than come back tomorrow and don't drink in between. And so I said, thank you, I gotta go. And I went home and I called my mom and dad and I told them I'm sober in AA and everything's okay now. And they were so excited for me, seemingly. And then I went, I went home and I waited until 11 o'clock at night and I went out to the bar because that's what you do every day. And I went to the bar and I told everybody as I was drinking my Diet Coke and smoking my cigarettes that I'm sober in AA now and everything's gonna be better. And that was how I stayed sober for the first five or six days of my sobriety. And I would go every single night to a bar or party. I would get dressed up. My friends would be doing many illegal things around me, drinking. I was so proud of myself. Look, and I really believed, my mental obsession believed, I don't have to do any work because my parents are sober. And I must have gotten it through osmosis because I used to go to meetings with them. And clearly, I got this. And I got this are the famous last words of every relapser, right? And so the sixth night of my sobriety, I skipped the meeting that night because I don't want to go to another meeting. You guys say the same thing at every single meeting. You read the same thing. It's so boring. I, I had bought tickets for a show that night before I got sober. They were $12 at the Swindlefish and I didn't want to waste the money. And so that night, oh, I forgot to tell you this special thing. I was in an apartment living with a guy that I was sleeping with and dating, but we had an open relationship, which included if you were going to sleep at someone else's house that night, you're not allowed to call the person and let them know that you're not coming home, which meant that one person that was not having a good time was sitting and rocking in the house, wondering when the other person was going to come home. And this was all dictated by my then open boyfriend relationship. And I went after all of his friends because he is the one who wanted to do this. And I was going to show him and you hurt me and I'll hurt you worse. And so this was the first night that he took me up on the offer and he had a real date and he told me he had a real date. And so he went on a date that night with a girl he told me he liked. I am six days sober. I am doing zero work. I hate myself and I hate sobriety and I've not been to treatment. So I don't know what feeling I'm having from my feeling chart. All I know is if this is sobriety, you can have it. And I went that night with the girl, the girl he was on a date with. I went with her roommate and her friend. And they offered me something that would have broken my sobriety. And I remember not feeling proud when they offered it to me and feeling miserable. And I remember having tears rolling down my face because I hated sobriety. I was like, if this is sobriety, I don't want any part in it. I can't live my life when I'm drinking because I can't function and I want to kill myself. And if this is what sober is like, I don't want to have any part in this. And long story short, after walking to that bar and wanting to drink so badly that I would injure those girls to get alcohol and looking in the mirror at the bathroom and hating myself and hating what I saw and being obsessed with the image on the outside did not match the image on the inside and knowing that at the end of January, 
two months before I was going to turn 20 that I was not going to see my 20th birthday, that I was either going to take my own life or I was going to overdose. And that if this was sobriety, you can have it. And I went back to my apartment. My boyfriend was still on a date. I changed my clothes into a flannel and shorts. I opened up the freezer and there was a bottle of vodka in the freezer. There was a packed bowl of paraphernalia on the table. I knew that if I would have either of those, I would lose my sobriety date, which I had written in my big book because someone told me to. I opened up the big book. I looked at your numbers. It was 1.30 in the morning. And I was like, you guys have met me five times. You're not going to even know who I am. I'm not going to call you at 1.30 in the morning. And what I can tell anyone that's listening is we don't care. Like, we don't care if we don't know you. If an alcoholic is calling us at 1.30 in the morning and it's not to talk about, like, a TV show, it's because they're dying, we're going to talk to you. We don't care what who you are, right? But I didn't know that. And I, my boyfriend came home from his date and I have six days of sobriety, not one drop of alcohol or anything else in my body. And I go in the bathroom without any thinking and I rummage through the medicine cabinets after closing the door and I pour 90 capsules, 90 pills in my hand and I swallow them handful after handful after handful. And I make the completely sober decision to take my own life. And I had thought about suicide many times before but I was never able to go through with it because I was drinking and that was still my solution. And that was enough of a solution to keep me not dead. And six days sober without any alcohol in my body, the mental obsession told me the lie that not only was sobriety never going to work for me. And if there's a sobriety, you can have it. It told me the lie that even though this would be painful for my family initially, that everybody would be better off eventually because I was causing so much emotional pain. And the reason why I like to share that part is because people who have never been to the place of knowing that darkness don't understand how anyone could feel that way because it is so selfish. But what I can tell you from my own experience is that I couldn't see another option. And that's what really happens to real, real alcoholics when we don't have a solution and we don't have alcohol in our body. You know, alcohol is a spirit and then God's a spirit. And so we need one of those to help us. And I had no relationship with God. I believed in God, but I didn't think God wanted to have anything to do with me. And I remember I pulled myself down. The water was still running. The pill bottles were empty. I pulled myself down from the bathroom sink to the floor. There was a red little rug. And I laid there in the fetal position and I waited to die. My dad's a pharmacist. I'd been around the pharmacy for my whole life. I knew that the combination I took would not, would do the job. And there was a voice inside of me, which today I know without any question was the voice of God. And it said very clearly, you're going to die. You need to get up and call for help. And it was God. It's the same exact voice I have today inside of me. That's God. And it told me over and over and over again, and what I want to remind myself is that I made that decision and I handed in my keys and I said, I'm done. I don't want any more of this. And God had a different plan. And I was able to hear, and I don't know why I listened. And I didn't have hope when I heard that voice, but I had enough action within me to not ignore it. And when my boyfriend came in and picked me up off the floor and screamed and cried and called 911 and the ambulance came and they pumped my stomach and I drank two bottles of charcoal and they told me I lost all my rights as a human being and I had that tube down my throat and it was the middle of the night and the police handed over the Ziploc bag full of empty bottles and the doctor came in holding it up and I'm locked up with all these tubes and wires and my arms are bloody and black and blue because the nurses don't like when you try to overdose because they're sick of seeing that. And the doctor said 
Carly, I would not have been able to revive you if it had been 15 minutes later. There's no way on earth that I would have been able to get this combination out of your system and, and kept you alive. And I felt nothing. That was not my bottom. You know, we want the big dramatic thing to be our bottom. But I went down to the, I, I, I demanded, because when he locked me up, I'm like an animal. I demanded they call my parents and tell them what was going on, which is just because I was selfish, because I wanted it to be dramatic. I went down to ICU. They wouldn't let me leave. I finally, and, and what I want to share today that I need to remember is I ended up writing my whole story, not just this story, but like my whole family story, my memoir. And I called it Seconds and Inches because of you guys, because you guys taught me that we all get sober by seconds and inches and our life all is by seconds and inches. And I went right before my book released during COVID, I drove with my husband to Athens, Ohio. I had not been back in 20 years and I was really afraid to go back because it used to haunt me when I went there because it was such a hard place for me to be. And before I got there, I was in an area called Hocking Hills, which is really close. And I called the Athens Police Department. And I only knew to do this because I'd done all this research when I was writing my book that you can get records sometimes that can really help you with information. I've been telling the story of my suicide for 22 years. I never, ever remembered or considered the police officers that showed up in my apartment. And the Athens police had the record and they sent it over to me so easy. I was like, this is too easy. I can't believe this is just going to be in my inbox. And it was in my attachment. I opened it up. I explained to the woman that answered the phone. And at the top, it said suicide. And, you know, police reports don't have a lot of fluff in them. They're very, very black and white. And it showed all the steps and the time. And it showed the officer's name, lieutenant's name. And then it showed a note to the hospital to call a crisis hotline if I made it. And I just had these chills. And I remember that there was this woman that came to my bed when I was in the ICU and I remember thinking she kind of reminded me like someone in AA because she was annoying and she was telling me there was going to be hope. And she told me I could do something about this. And I totally blew her off, but she was one of the crisis counselors. And what else I found out was that that Lieutenant never got thanked for saving my life. And part of what I've been learning along this journey is that people need to be acknowledged. You guys taught me that when you taught me about the nine step amends and you've taught me that about the 10 step and about how to live our lives. And so I reached back out to the police department that same day and I explained what I wanted to do. And I explained that I'd like to be in touch with that Lieutenant. And three hours later, I got an email from the Lieutenant who was in active duty in like Afghanistan or somewhere and said, I don't remember your particular situation because unfortunately I showed up at a lot of apartments where there were suicide attempts, but please tell me more. And I sent him a picture of my three children that are alive only because of what he did that night where he showed up and did his job. And I told him I was 22 years sober and that I have a book and we send it to him. And I thanked him for the part he played. And the reason why I want to share that is I think it's really important that we acknowledge the people on our path that helped us stay alive. And I never even thought of him until I saw his name on that document. And so the way I would describe to you that was my actual bottom was I left after that lady, the crisis lady came, I told her to leave. I was driving the nurses crazy. And they're like, you can leave without medical advice. Like you don't have to be here. And I was furious. I was like, why didn't anyone tell me that? I, I, I wouldn't have sat here this whole time. And I pull my tubes out and I pull my clothes on and I get my little baggie with my leftover clothes and I'm wearing shorts and a flannel. I sign myself out. I go down to the waiting room so I could bum a smoke. It was marble red. I needed to figure out my next move so I could find out what was next. 
the thing that I love to share is in the big book, it talks about we agnostics. Basically, we agnostics, which was a chapter I thought I never had to read because I believed in God. It's one of the most important chapters for me. So agnostic is meaning someone without knowledge. There's atheists who believe, they actually believe that there either is no God or that you can't prove, so therefore they don't believe in a higher power. Agnostics are people who might believe, but they don't act like believers. And then there's true believers. I was an agnostic. And most of the time I acted like an atheist. I acted like the only God in my life was me. And when I went down to that waiting room to bomb the smoke before I walked home, the mile and a half in the winter, I knew, because I had complete faith, because I always had, that if I just was given enough time and you were quiet, I could figure out my next plan. And on that walk home, I was smoking that cigarette. I was freezing cold. It was January 27, 1999. I was a mile and a half away from my apartment, and I was tired and out of plans. And that was my bottom. That was my gift of desperation that you guys taught me about in these rooms. I talked about the gift of desperation for decades before someone said that that stands for God, gift of desperation. And I was like, shut up. I had no idea. And I was told by you guys in the room that all of us are given these gifts. We're not just given one gift. We're given them again and again and again. And what we do with it is up to us. And on that walk home, I realized that I literally had nowhere else to go that everyone knew about what I was doing. No one believed me because I lied all the time. No one trusted me. And I would find out when I got back to my apartment and I talked to my mom because she went to Families Anonymous and they told her to say this to me, that she told me she was done cleaning up my messes and that she couldn't help me anymore. And that actually, I talk about this a lot because a lot of parents come to me because they know I got sober young and like the world like, what do I do with my kid? And I'm like, all I know is you need to go get help from people who know because I don't know, but they do. And they guided her. And the thing that she said, because I'm a mother today and I can't even imagine the day after my child tries to take their own life to tell them I have to let them go. Because the fear that you have to have as a parent to say, I can't help you with the knowledge that I just tried taking my own life and I could easily do that again, which would never have been on her shoulders. Because no, no human power can relieve us of our alcoholism. And if there was a human power that could have, it would have been my mother because she wanted it more than anybody. And when she removed that only safety net I had left, I realized I truly had nowhere else to go. And I went back to you. And I went to meetings. That's my sobriety day. And I wish I could say, I don't wish I could say because I learned so much along the way, but my life did not get better when I got sober. My life got worse when I got sober because I did nothing other than not drink and go to meetings. And the real alcoholic, and at least in my experience, if you remove alcohol and you don't replace it with the work, with the 12 steps to get rid of our junk, we will become suicidal in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've gone to more funerals of sober members of AA who stopped doing the work than of people who got drunk and left. And what happened to me was I got in a fight with my mom because I had a sponsor that said first step, first year. And I was like, super. First step, first year, I don't have to worry about that four step that everyone keeps talking about or the nine step I don't have to do for nine years. And my mom and I were in a fight on the phone and she said that I was a really nasty person as a sober person. And when was I going to get nicer and not so angry? And I like yelled at her and was like, what do you want from me? You wanted me to be sober. I'm sober. I'm going to your meetings. What else do you want from me? And she was like, are you going to wait 
to get better and then work the steps or are you going to work the steps to get better? She was like always cliching me. And I said, mom, my sponsor said first step first year. And she's like, so when are you going to work your inventory? And I said, well, according to her in four years. And my mom yelled at me and like gave me a new, you know, birth date basically. And we got off the phone and she got me just angry enough that I was going to show her and I was going to get a new sponsor that was going to help me through the steps. And I was going to show her that this is just who I am sober. And I came back to Cleveland and I got a really mean lady that had a big book like mine and it had highlights and underlines. She told me to meet her at her house and do not be late and bring a pen and bring a dictionary and bring your big book. And I don't want anything written in it except what we're going to write in it and bring a list of what you want me to do for you and what you expect of me. And I'll bring one for you. And I was like, and she completely changed my life. She saved my life. She showed me that there is a layout in this book, a treasure map. was left by the first 100 men and women who mostly all died sober and who left us. I love, I'm a visual person. So one of the members of my old home group was active, was served in the military in one of those scary countries where there's like IEDs in the ground. And he said that whenever that they were instructed when they would cross a field, that they had to walk in the footsteps of the man or woman ahead of them So, because if that person was alive, that meant that was a safe place to walk. It gives me chills when I think about it. And that's what we're supposed to do here. We're supposed to walk in the footsteps of the people who made it out alive. I don't need to, you know, make my own new path and figure it out the way I want to do it. And when I try doing that, I nearly kill myself sober in the rooms of AA. And so it wasn't until this woman sat me down and took me through the book and took me through the steps and changed my entire life. And I just wanted to share with you what that looked like in a very small window. So the, I love the steps. They are the only thing I can 100% guarantee a, a person that is suffering in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, if they're real alcoholic, if they do them, 100% of the time they will stay sober if they don't ever stop doing them. I've ne- In 22 years of my sobriety, I've never seen one person that works the steps out of this book continuously that gets drunk. I've seen people that work the steps and stop working the steps get drunk, but I've never seen anyone that continuously does that. So the percentage rates that I wish people would talk about is that, that 100%. Um, So the first three steps, it was explained to me, are just decisions and ideas. There's no action taken in them, but I was terrified of the step three. And the first step is knowing that I I have a physical allergy and mental obsession. That's my problem. The second step is saying there's a possible solution and you've never tried it and why don't you try it? And maybe it could possibly work for you. You don't have to believe it. You could just think it's possible. The third step is do you want to get better? Are you ready to change? And there's a guy that died sober who was one of my closest friends. He gave me my first job in AA. His name was Frank H. And he he told me that the third step, because I would freak out about like, oh my God, I don't want God to take over. And what if he makes me this? And what if he makes me that? And he said, Carly, all the third step is, is a decision to do the fourth step. That's it. It's a decision to do the rest of the work. If you make a decision, you have to follow it up with action. And so the third step is just a decision. And so when we take women through the book and we get them on their knees and we do the third step prayer and we explain to them, like, and I explain it to them. I don't want there to be anything hidden. I'm like, look, if you're going to work with me, we're going to work. And what the, what you're going to do after your exciting third step is we're going to do work. 
Just as if I was hiring someone for a janitorial job, I want them to understand that they're going to be cleaning toilets and that they're going to be washing, you know, floors. I don't want them to be surprised about it. And so it was told to me, you're going to be doing inventory work. You're going to be looking at stuff that you never wanted to look at. You're going to unbury it and share it with one person that you don't even know or like or trust. And then you're going to talk about it with your higher power. You're going to try to let it go. And then you're going to go out and make amends to to all the people that you harmed. And I'm going to help you with that. And I tell them that because I'm like, look, if you're going to make this decision to the third step, it's going to be followed immediately. Like tonight, when we give a woman the directions, she has to go home and at least write for 20 minutes that first night. Because if she doesn't write for 20 minutes that first night, she's making the decision to go back into the burning building and sit on the couch and die an alcoholic death. Because without the action steps to get through the hallway that we've built between ourselves and the world, you know, that's been stuffed with all my junk, it's just an idea. It's just a beautiful moment. They talk about it in the book and they say, that even though the third step was vital step, that it could have little permanent lasting effect unless at once followed by strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves that were blocking us. And I had a lot of things that I blocked you from me, which is why when well-meaning, kind people in AA would tell me, let us love you until you can love yourself, I laughed at them because I couldn't feel anything because my heart was so blocked off. And the only way to unblock my junk in my experience is the inventory steps. And I was told how to do that out of the book. I was given 10 days maximum to get it done, not six months or a year to write my great American novel. And we sat down, we went through it. And my sponsor helped me realize that a lot of the things I was embarrassed about, she had already done and that they weren't even that big of a deal and they were kind of boring. And we went through it all. And she helped me find my character defects. And I went home after my fifth step to do that hour with God. And I wrote in my journal about how I don't want to live like this anymore. And I read the page to make sure I wasn't missing anything. And I did my sixth and seventh step, which are like the most untalked about steps in the whole program. But if you love artichokes like I do, you know that they are like the heart. But it takes a lot to get to that heart. You know, you have to get rid of all the leaves and the choke. And then you get that yummy meat. And six and seven have so little written about them because they're so simple. It was explained to me, if you go to Lowe's to get a hammer, there's not going to be instructions with it. It's just a hammer. And so the six and seven step are these very simple, but really important concepts that I'm going to apply in 10, 11, and 12, which are basically, and I want to share this with you because it's one of my favorite ways to communicate this. And then I promise I'll be done soon. I was a server in restaurants for many years, for six years. And I loved being a restaurant server because a really good server can take really good care of their their diners and you can get money that way, right? That's how you get money. And so a really good server cannot communicate with the diner and know if they're done eating or not. And I needed to figure out a way to figure, to realize like, how do I show God I'm ready? Because step six is I have to, I have to be entirely ready. God's going to remove the defects. So how is God going to know I'm ready? And I thought about when you walk past a table, if you're a good server, all you have to do is look out of the corner of your eye, regardless of where someone is in the world, and they either push their plate ahead of them, they put their silverware down or their napkins down. They are not eating off their plate. And then they're not even saying anything. You just take it away. They're grateful. Then you can clean up the area and give them a dessert. If you're eating off of your plate and you remove it while someone's eating, you're not going to get a good tip. And God is like a good server. And God walks by me. And sees I'm not done with something that I keep asking God for to to take from me. 
and is like, let me know when you're ready. Like I used to ask God, and this is no judgment on anyone. I wish I could smoke if it didn't give me cancer and make me not breathe. But like when I used to smoke, I, I loved smoking. I tried quitting for so long, my first couple of years of sobriety. And I would smoke cigarettes and pray to God to help me quit smoking. And God's like, you're a joke. Like, let me know when you're ready, you know? And I would go out with the smokers in AA, again, no judgment, and we would discuss how they quit smoking when they try to quit smoking, which is like talking to someone in prison about how you escape prison while you're in prison. So it wasn't until, in terms of smoking in step six and seven, I showed God a full day, no patch, no gum, no nothing, just I will not pick up a cigarette for this full day if you show up and give me what I need to get through it. And we went, went through one day and then that built and built and built. And that is what six and seven is for me is how do I show God I'm ready? So if there's an area in my life, which there always is that I'm struggling in, I need to ask myself, am I showing God I'm ready to change or am I acting like someone who's not done eating? And then eight and nine are about cleaning up my side of the street. And I need a sponsor to do that because I'm going to make amends to the wrong people for the wrong motives, which I try to. And then, then fast forward, I didn't know how to do a 10 step for 13 years of sobriety, even though it was in the big book. And I had to do an inventory of four step every year because my stuff built up. I would do a third of the 11 step at night, the, the nightly 11 step. I didn't meditate. I prayed. I listened to big book, you know, leads and I listened to speaker leads. I went to meetings and I worked with women in 12, but I didn't do 10 and I didn't do two thirds of 11. And at 13 years of sobriety, I heard this guy named Kevin M. We have to get to talk because he's awesome. And he blew the top of my head off when he talked about step 10. And I was like, I I don't know how to do that. And I've been working step 10 out of the book for the last eight, nine years and it's completely changed my entire sobriety. And I'll just take you through this and then I'll close. So the 10 step is what we do whenever we get stuck. We get upset, we get anxious, we get afraid, we get resentful in the day, in the moment. And so I don't have to wait to finish my amends to start doing step 10 because it says in the book, while we're cleaning up the past, we do the present, right? You don't wait. And so the 10 step is like my pocket knife step. Like, you know, like the pocket knife, how it has all those different tools. I can carry it around with me and I can do the inventory that I learned how to do in four and five. I can ask God in six and seven and share it. I can, I can see what amends I need to make with whether it's amends to you or a change I need to make within myself. And I can do that at any point in the day. The 10 step is the number one step that has completely altered my sobriety and my life. And then 11, I start my day every morning and I ask God for help on my knees and I meditate and that looks different all the time because I'm going through different things all the time, but there's never a day I miss it ever, ever. And throughout the day, I try to talk to God, but I forget all day because I'm human, that God's even available. And at the end of the night, I do an inventory to make sure I didn't miss anything. And throughout the day, I've got, you know, I get to work with a lot of women that send me inventories because I don't do the whole therapy like sponsoring anymore. And we just inventory and it's become this life that there is no part of my life that is AA and not AA. It's just a sober life. And I have more to lose today at 22 years of sobriety than I've ever had to lose in my life, which means I have more to do today than I will ever have to do. So I don't know if in closing, do you do the Our Father now or do I just hand it over to Marlene? What, how does this work? I wanted to tell my listeners about a new podcast that I'm so excited about called Must Love Self. It is on iTunes and anywhere else you normally listen to. And I want you to subscribe so you can follow along on this journey of conversations I'm going to be having with brave women and professionals in the field 
all who are willing to step up to the virtual microphone and share their stories of ugly and beautiful and struggles, none of which are perfect, but all who want to get better and want to love our bodies, find our worth, and use our voices the way that we are all meant to. It's going to be a pretty incredible thing, and I feel like it's going to become a movement where we can all support each other on the journey. So please check it out, Must Love Self Podcast. For any listeners who would like to get deeper insight into my story, I just released my memoir, Seconds and Inches. It was a dream of mine for decades to write my memoir. And while I do not believe in mixing money in AA, I just wanted to share with the world that I did this accomplishment and it can be found wherever you normally purchase books, paperback, audio, or digital. I wish you an awesome day. Thank you.